I did it for health reasons. What should I give up? I give up meat first. Then I said, now what? So I started giving up eggs. One thing people should give up first in life is dairy. There's no reason that people should have dairy, period. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm Maya Acosta, and I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. South Asians living in the U.S. are more likely to die from heart disease than the general population. Immigrants coming from Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, the Maldives, Nepal, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka are one of the fastest growing populations in the U.S. It's not clear why South Asians are more prone to heart disease than other groups. While it is clear that cardiovascular disease can be passed down in families, researchers have yet to find a specific genetic cause that would make South Asians more at risk than other groups. There are some conditions that increase the risk of cardiovascular disease among South Asians. One key condition is an increased risk of diabetes at a young age, and another is cholesterol abnormalities. Because studies indicate that South Asians develop heart disease earlier in life than other groups, doctors are working to increase awareness among the South Asian community to get tested for signs of cardiovascular problems as early as possible. Researchers say that much of the risk can be mitigated by lifestyle changes, such as diet, exercise, and avoiding tobacco. And although many South Asians are vegetarians, their diets include too much fat, sugar, and refined carbohydrates. And these tendencies increase the longer they live in the United States. Now, this information comes from heart.org, and I will include a link to this article. We have a guest today who will talk about his book, Open Heart. Dr. Akil Tehar, MD, is a practicing physician living in Atlanta, Georgia. He was raised in Mumbai, India, and trained in family medicine at the Flower Hospital in Sylvania, Ohio. Dr. Tehar is an eternal optimist, explorer, and adventurer who, in 2010, at the age of 61, dramatically altered the conventional script adopted by most bypass surgery patients by undertaking a mountaineering trek to Mount Kailash in Tibet. This was a year after his open heart surgery. In October 2011, he ran his first full marathon, the Chicago Marathon. And in September 2012, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest freestanding mountain in the world. Dr. Tehar then expanded the canvas of his age-defying adventures by pursuing physical challenging activities on land, sea, and air, including a century bike ride, a 100-mile cycling event, triathlon, scuba diving, whitewater rafting, hang gliding, and skydiving. Over the last decade, he has overcome acute and chronic medical ailments by transforming his mind, body, and spirit through the adoption of a plant-based diet, practice of yoga and meditation, regular exercise, and developing a positive and purpose-driven mindset. Dr. Tehar is also a speaker focused on spreading the message of a heart-healthy lifestyle. Open Heart is his first book, and it chronicles his exploits since his heart surgery. 
He's happily married and has two children and an adorable grandson. All the links for Dr. Tehart will be included in the show notes. And let's welcome Dr. Akil Tehar. Maya, thank you for that kind introduction. And I'm so happy that you've given me the opportunity to talk about a subject which is extremely very dear to my heart. No pun intended, right? <laughs> Near to your heart. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to read your book, Open Heart. And as I was reading the introduction, I said, you know, I'm getting chills just reading it because I think we're always looking for inspiration. And your story is exactly that. Um, so I'd love to hear your story. And if we can start just by basically asking what motivated you to write the book and who is this book for? See, I was, uh, first of all, I was motivated with the fact that heart disease is the leading cause of death, not only in the U.S., but worldwide, killing more people than all the cancers combined. And this is ongoing for the last 103 years in a row. So to me, I was always wondering, and then I succumbed to heart disease at a very young age, coronary artery disease at the age of 56. So when I started making changes, transformation in my life, physical, meditation, yoga, I, or coming back from uh, uh, adventure, I would come back and talk to my patients. I would talk to my staff. I would talk to my friends and family. And they were thrilled. And some of them incorporated the changes that I made in their lives. And they kept pushing me. Why don't you write? Why don't you write? So I said, uh, you know, I always blame time that I don't have time. So in a way, COVID-19 being so bad was somehow a blessing in disguise for me because it gave me time to sit down, put my thoughts on paper and finish my book. I think I also heard you say that during this time, during the pandemic, you learned to cook. Is that right? Uh, yes, but I'm a very, very slow learner in cooking. Okay. <laughs> One of my things is not my forte, but I'm trying very hard. Well, let's start with your story. Please tell us what happened to you at a young age. Okay, let me start by being very honest with you, Maya. I came to this country pretty late in my 40s. So I had a lot of catching up to do. So I had to sort of, when I started pursuing the so-called American dream, I ended up with a reckless pursuit of fame and fortune. I started working endless hours, paying scant attention to my heart, to my uh, health, to my family, to my friends. And then I believe very strongly that the work at that time robbed me of an opportunity to actually live my life with purpose, positivity, and passion. So, all my adult life, I was a lover. I enjoyed rich, unhealthy food without worrying about the unhealthy consequences like heart disease. And I, like many, 
I believe that heart disease will not happen to me. So I was drawn to meat, eggs, dairy, sugar, oil, like a moth drawn to a flame. I needed this kind of foods to, I mean, I was an addict. I was a food addict. I needed this kind of foods to get my daily high. So I, ter I termed myself a seafood eater, S-E-E. -E. I had everything at sight. Be Chinese food, Indian food, all bad food. I'm talking about rich food, Mexican food, you name it, and I've eaten it. Apart from this, I was a couch potato. I made absolutely no, and, and trust me on this, uh, people of my age, when they come to America, the older first generation Indians, did not know the meaning of the word exercise. So all the exercise, all the exercise I did was for my eye muscles, look at joggers run in the park, or my hand muscles using the remote to change TV. So in, apart from that, I had a type A personality. I needed to have everything under control. It was my way or the highway. So all this leads to what? All this leads to a tremendous amount of stress in your life. And stress is not a problem. Because if stress was a problem, all of our CEOs and presidents and prime ministers would be in lunatic asylum. It is how you handle stress. I did not know how to handle the stress. So I was not surprised when heart disease came knocking at my door at the age of 56. Three of my arteries were blocked. Two of my arteries, the one which was the LAD, left anterior descending and right coronary artery, were 98 to 99% blocked. And the circumflex was also blocked, but these two were, and the LAD is supposed to be called the widow maker. Now, so the idea was that when these things, so they asked me that we should have stents. I said, okay, go ahead. While they were putting on the stents, my, my plaques were so hard, thick, that they had to use a diamond-tipped drill to shave the plaques. And when they did that in the process, guess what? I got a cardiac arrest. My heart stopped. And they had to literally shock me to get my heart beating again. They stopped the procedure. They put me overnight in the hospital and completed the procedure the next morning. But next morning, Maya, I was shocked to see battle burns on my chest. That was a state I was. Now, you know, coming to think of it, even with this sort of a lifestyle that I was leading, I was... In, in spite of having the coronary artery disease, my type A personality prevailed. And I put on a brave face and literally laughed at my medical problems 
and continued living my poor lifestyle and the diet. Same, I did not change. While inside me, there were tormenting thoughts running riots in my mind. I was a doctor. I was supposed to treat patients, not be a patient. Mm -hmm. So then it comes to the point that gradually I started withdrawing from life. And the next five years were devastating. I would sit alone. I was alone. I was lonely. I was sad. And I would have, for no rhyme or reason, I would have bouts of sobbing and my hands cupping my face. And then I would be, at times, I would just sit for long hours in a chair and stare aimlessly. I was heavily depressed. And sometimes I would get into a rage and throw things around. But this was a kind of, you know, the rage was not a really a rage. It was a cover-up for the despair that I felt. So with all this, it, and, and, and my nights were rough. I remember getting up scared, frightened, and my PJs were full of sweat. And mornings are no better. I used to force myself to go to work, but by the time I dressed up, I was completely worn out. So all these negative thoughts manifested itself into physical symptoms. So now I had the sinus infection and uh, the bronchitis, pneumonia, all that happened. Then, you, then I started having that severe chronic constipation, which was my own making because of my diet, which was no fiber diet. So I had severe constipation, which led to the infamous diverticulitis. And with the diverticulitis, I had perforations twice when I was admitted for a long time in the hospital. And, and believe you me, the second time my perforation, the surgeon was waiting in the wings with a knife to actually take my disease colon out. And I refused because I talked to other people. My temperature had come down. My white count was normal. But that was shocking. The second time, because of my enlarged prostate, I was admitted for acute retention of urine and bleeding, uh, gross bleeding. I tell you, that was sometimes I feel was the pain was so terrible because what they did was they put a large catheter to remove all those huge clots out. And it was, and I'm not, it was exactly like somebody taking a sharp object and piercing it in your genitals. So when I had that, sometimes when I think about it, I really get shook up, you know. But I, those things actually, I was not surprised anymore. So my stance failed. My stance failed. I was uh, now had to face the open heart bypass surgery. 
this is my transformation. This was my inflection point. This was my reflection point. Maya had only two choices, either to continue my mediocre, sedentary life and like what all my heart patients did, you know, what bypass surgery patients did, or to start making a lifestyle change involving a proper whole food, plant-based diet, exercise, meditation, yoga, and sky breathing. I could have retired. I could have retired, sat on my uh, rocking chair, lived vicariously through my children and my grandchild, and wait for the inevitable death. But I chose to live my life to the fullest. And I turned this setback into an opportunity. That is what I want the home message to everybody listening to this. That if you have some uh, adversity in your life, adversity can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Now look what happened in my life. After, the, after finding out that I had a heart disease, adversity became my worst friend. The five years, terrible. After the heart surgery, adversity became my best friend because I changed. And now was the meaning. The two choices I had, I took the second choice. And as they were wheeling me, into the surgery room, I looked at the nurses and I told them that I would do a half marathon in a year's time if my post-operative went well. They laughed, they joked, they thought I was joking. I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. And, and I, was, I was feeling so good that my recovery was remarkable. I got onto the treadmill on the third day. And even with the intense, excruciating uh, chest pain, because that opened me up, which people with heart surgery can tell you, once you get that cough, the pain is so bad, but I did not take a single pain medication. Not one pain medication. I was happier in physical pain than I was with the mental agony of the last five years. Five years were seemed like they might have been so agonizing that when you were faced with now open heart surgery, you said, that's it. It's either now or never. That's true. You are so right. You hit the nail on the head. Because the first time was a short period. Like I had that uh, cardiac arrest. Now was a five years. I didn't want to live. At one stage, I'd given up hope and even thought of ending my life. Mm. So this was a new chapter for me. And this chapter now was amazing. So what did I, what did I do? I, I, I went and I said, wait a minute. I promised the nurses. So what to do? I have to take up running. So I took up running because it's an easier spot. You don't have to buy rackets or bats or all these things. All you need is shorts and sneakers. A guy who is a sedentary slob now is trying to do one kilometer of walk and finding, oh, my God, this is terrible. But I started. I did one kilometers, two kilometers, continued walking, 
did my uh, uh, jog, started jog walk, then start slow run. Then I went on to a reasonably paced run. To me, running was, somebody asked me in the last talk, that is this your own saying? But I just thought of it. Running was meditation in motion because I loved hearing the birds chirp. Even the squirrels smirching around for finding food was pleasant sound to the ears. And I, I loved my running this thing. I love running alone. I don't need a partner because it is, like I said, meditation for me. So came the time when I had to go to Nashville, Tennessee with my wife to do this. Now there was a dichotomy of fear and excitement. So you know what happened? Uh, I, I, I could not sleep that night. So at 1, 1 a.m. or something, I went to sleep. And I got a strange dream. Hmm. I thought that I was uh, in the Olympics representing U.S. And I, was, <laughs> I won. And somebody was trying to put a medal on me. And I'm singing the Star Spangled Banner totally out of tune, totally out of tune. And I then got up and I said, maybe there's a more bigger things to come. I don't know. So I went over there, started slow. I never had hills in my small town. I'm facing hills. I'm doing, I said, oh my God, this is difficult. But I, I said, wait a minute, enjoy yourself. You're not enjoying so I said, okay. I had a Karahoot attitude. I started enjoying and running. Someone even passed me a beer on the way when the <laughs> running was going. And I'll let you be the judge whether I took it or not. But any case, so I ran that uh, this thing in three and a half grueling hours. But mm. trust me, my heart, my bruised heart did not fail me. It physically and figuratively carried me to the finish line. Ah, that's so beautifully said. My goodness, what an inspiring story. Did, now, did you have to get any permission from your cardiologist who okayed your running just a year after an open heart surgery? That is very right. You know, I always tell people that if you don't have any lingering, say if you've got a stroke, but if you've got hemiparesis or things like this, then you should not. What I'm saying is if you get a major catastrophe and you're completely out of it, you mm. should not worry about it. You should be doing the things. Uh, but, but my point is that when I went to Mount Kailash, which was about 19,000 feet also, there, they would not let me go. They said, you've got a heart problem, so you have to use a yak or a donkey. You have to use oxygen. And we were 30 of us. And you have to, the four of us went on foot. So they said, get us a clearance from a cardiologist. Thank God, my cardiologist was traveling with me. So I said, here is my clearance. So he said, no, no, it is okay. So they let me do it, you know. Wonderful. How did you feel after completing your first marathon in Nashville? Oh, I was on top of Mount Everest. I thought I'd done everything and anything that needed to be done. And, you know, every marathon or every uh, outside activity I've done, I've done it with two purposes. 
One is to race. So I raced in the Chicago Marathon. I raised ten thousand dollars, eleven thousand single-handedly mm. for the American Heart Association. Then I ran the Mumbai Marathon and the Bombay Marathon. I raised money for what my wife is very interesting about Peter and St. Jude's for children. So I raised money, another eleven thousand dollars for that. Mm-hmm. So and when I and I also believe that that. Uh, bombing of uh, in Boston, the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. So I raised money for that too because it happened in 2013. I ran it in 2014. Oh my goodness, that's even more meaningful. More meaningful. And I tell you, uh, let me just say in just two few statements. There are nice people in America. That kind people, the generous people in America. I love this country for that reason. You know why? As I was running the Boston Marathon, I I had what you call as um, a woolish cap, you know, I, 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 I because I'm cold natured. So I, it was pretty cold in the early mornings. So I put that uh, cap and I ran, but soon it started becoming hot. So I took that and discarded it. And then I walk up. I Normally, my wife always tells me, put $20 in your this thing, Bill, in my pocket. Mm-hmm. I walked up to an absolute stranger who had a hat. And I said, look, I'll give you my $20 if you let me have your hat. Uh, he was reluctant initially, but his wife or girlfriend or whatever elbowed him and said, give that hat to that gentleman. <laughs> you can take my $20. But as I was going away, he said, remember one thing, that hat has been with me for 10 years. You better finish that race. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I had a calf muscle tear that year. And I that motivated me to finish the race. And after that, I spent one to two hours looking for him and asking the authorities. They said, give us a name. I wanted to return the hat to him. Oh. But I could not. I hope one day he's listening to this. <laughs> when he reads my book, I would love to give him my hat. It's right. always with me somewhere, you know. I always wear it because it's it's a custom-made hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Boston Red Sox. Oh, my goodness. Imagine if he did, if he was to hear the story, especially how meaningful it was for you after your health scares to be able to complete this run and with calf problems as well. Yes, yes. So true. So, <laughs> so true. I bet you at the time that you completed your Nashville marathon, you had no idea that you had created this passion, that there would be so many other uh, athletic opportunities and of cycling and completing other challenges for yourself. See, the trouble is that I get, I should not, but I get pretty bored with one thing that I do. So I'm also always looking for new challenges. So when I'm looking for new challenges, so after that uh, initial half marathon, I did a few half marathons. And then somebody said, let's do the Chicago marathon. The Chicago marathon was important because uh, Maya, there were there was a, a lady who was full term and she was running the Chicago marathon. And on her T-shirt, it was written, I have my permission from my OBGYN oh. to run this race. She ran the race, beat her husband by 15 minutes, 
went to the hotel and in eight hours, she delivered a healthy baby boy. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Incredible. 2000, was it 2011 or 2012? I'm getting <laughs> my, this mixed up, but there's Chicago Marathon. This is what happened. I, I ran with her. I saw, I said, oh my God, what a powerful way to do it. It's incredible what our bodies can do when we support them. Correct, correct. And then and then I, I got to this thing. Uh, so I said, okay, when somebody turned around four months after my half marathon, before the Chicago marathon, somebody said, let's go to uh, trekking in Mount Kailash. And I said, yes. Mount Kilimanjaro came later on. That was very, very rough. And then uh, on, a, on my son's birthday, he said, do you want to jump out of a plane? I said, sure. <laughs> and I wore dark colored pants for that jump. So that if I have <laughs> an accident, <laughs> accident, people would not notice. But you know what? Fear is such a thing that if you face fear, then fear will not happen again. So that jump was very fearful. But when I did my bungee jumping in New Zealand, it was the first, the Kawaru Bridge, I may not pronounce it properly, is the first commercial bridge in the world where people do bungee jumping, first one in the world. I went over there and trust me, I felt like a bird. Oh my God. <laughs> I was superb. I have all these pictures that I have. So... You know, uh, people have taken, I've got a video of that. And I'm wondering, my God, did I do that? But that was the thing. But coming back to one very important thing was when I was making a transition, I was also transitioning into a good diet. But I was first a flexitarian, meaning I cut back on meat, eggs, and dairy, but not stopped it completely. So I, I could not. See, I was from a family that we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which was meat-based products. So I had to go slow. Now, my wife and daughter, they gave up for cruelty to animals 25 years back. I did not. So I did it for health reasons. But then I started, I said, what should I give up? I give up meat first. So then I said, now what? So I then started giving up eggs. And dairy, when I give up dairy, if one thing people should give up first in their life is dairy. There's no reason that people should have dairy, period. Then I gave up after dairy, I said, wait a minute, I could not give up fish. So I remained a pescatarian for the longest period of So when I gave up fish, I became a vegetarian and I became a vegan, but I became a junk food vegan. I was full of oil and what you have and uh, all these sugars and everything I enjoyed, fried foods. And I said, I'm a vegan. So that is a junk food vegan. Then I transformed. Why did I turn completely to whole food plant-based? Because even with this, 
as I was going on marathons and climbing mountains, I used to get my diverticle. Not that bad. I used to get sinus. I used to get certain stomach problems. So I said, I'm doing everything. I'm eating right. I'm doing meditation. I'm doing yoga. I'm doing everything. Why should it happen? So there's no scientific reason why I did it. But I said, wait, the only thing is that I'm my diet. When I transitioned to a whole food plant-based diet, wow, wow. There are two episodes. That one was a cycling that I did on a, on a diet which was flexitarian. I was still having a little bit. So not a little bit, but whenever I finished a long, so that 100-kilometer bike ride that I did, I came back and I used to always long distance. I used to next six, seven days, eat a lot of meat. Mm -hmm. And then I would be in bed for five, six days to recover. When the 100-mile bike ride came along, I was a vegan, a good vegan, whole food plant-based vegan. Awesome. So what is it that helped you to transform to clean up your diet? Was it anything you read in particular or a film that you watched? Yes. Uh, four cover knives. Uh, I watched that. I talked to uh, uh, Dean Ornish. I met him. I uh, talked to uh, uh, Dr. Collins, uh, T. Collins, uh, and then Neil Barnard and uh, Nandita Shah, our from the Indian side. I talked to all these people. And all of us have one thing in common now the whole food plant based diet. But what happened to me was, I, I was so uh, riddled with these problems of mine, the health problems. So I was willing to try anything. But where was a problem was peer pressure. So I was a pariah. People stopped inviting me. And I some of the people who stopped inviting me, thank God they stopped inviting me. Because I didn't want to go in the first place. But now... We have a situation where by I had to call in my time, I had to call restaurants. Do you have any vegan? And then I would wonder as to what I should do. So what I did was I'm more, I did not ever go into uh, packaged. So I did not because I could not, I think my stomach could not take it. The process thing would immediately work uh, negatively in my stomach. I would introduce some earthy thing like mushrooms, a portobello mushroom with spinach burger because they're earthy, the, the portobello mushrooms, or a jackfruit. Jackfruit I would introduce. So that goes. Like, for example, uh, for scrambled eggs, I would use the tofu, the hard tofu. And I, and, and again, this is a true story. I invited a few people in 2016, I think, to uh, New Year's Eve, uh, two couples who came over and stayed with us overnight. And uh, my wife used to always make uh, omelet, omelets for them. So I said, no, I'm going to make you a great scrambled eggs. They did not know that I was, they thought it was going to be eggs. So I made this thing and put all the condiments and spices and all that, and I gave it to them. So, wow. This is the best, uh, this thing we have had. And I said, you know, guys, this is not eggs. 
So one guy was sheepishly turned around and said, oh, then it doesn't taste too good. <laughs> but, you see, the thing is that you replace something that you like. So for my sweets, what I do now with my dessert, I just take up the oat milk and put raisins, put dates, and, and then I, uh, uh, what is that? Uh, dates, raisin, a little bit of blueberries and banana, and I make an ice cream, no processed sugar. Not that I don't. Now, regarding oil, yes, I can't help it. Because wherever I go, there is bound to be some oil. But at home, we try not to use. But again, a little bit is zero there. Mm -hmm. How have you been able to clean up some of your favorite dishes? I, I realized that that was hard for us as well. When I met my husband, uh, he's Pakistani. I asked his mother to teach me his favorite meals. And I had stopped eating red meat in um, probably in college. But suddenly I found myself cooking a lot of meat. This is before we went vegan. And uh, of course, the use of oil was pretty much, you know, it was pretty heavy. And the use of dairy when um, when I made any of the traditional Pakistani or Punjabi dishes. How have you been able to still make those delicious foods without so much oil and ghee? Let me first tell you, we South Asians, and South Asians meaning people from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, uh, Bangladesh, as far as Maldives and Bhutan. We love our oil. We have got a cultural connection to oil. So if we don't use oil, we feel that we are not doing justice to our guests. So if you have a pot of curry and it does not have a layer of oil as thick as a Valdi slick, that means we are not, our guests will not be happy. It's in my home too. Oil is the biggest factor. Then it was a question of the, the meats and, 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 and the kebabs. And the, and the great, uh, those, those were things that I had to give up. Mm -hmm. But you see, it is once you realize that how your body does without it, and if by chance also by mistake I take a heavy oil dish, some, my stomach will Im immediately revolt. Mm -hmm. So to me to give up uh, those things was difficult, but I had reached a stage that I had nowhere to go. And now I'm feeling so, uh, trust me, I've got more energy now than when I was 30 years old. Yeah. Just, uh, just three months back, I, I'd given up long distance running, but just three months back, uh, the All India Institution of uh, Physicians from Indian Origin, they invited me to be ambassador for their uh, half a marathon run. I said, I've stopped long distance run. Now I'm doing 5Ks and 10Ks. So please, so I went, I prepared, and I did it. <laughs> the food part of it is, is such an important connection that we have, we South Asians have with the food. And, 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 and people are dying. You see, if you ever ask a South Asian, whether it's a Pakistani, Indian, or whatever, do you know of a person who, who has a heart disease or died? 99% will tell you that we know somebody who has died or had a sudden heart attack in our in our family. Just just two months back, I had two ladies crying on the phone. 
One's husband was 41 years old, pretty healthy, pretty healthy, not obese, not a smoker, massive heart attack. South Asian, the second was 48, he was a smoker and everything. Both the wives crying on the phone that, please, what do we do? Right. So, South Asians are. We are 25% of the world's population, but we carry the 60% of the heart disease. From 19, no, from 2009 to 2019, India has doubled the heart disease rate. So India is now the heart disease capital of the world. Oh, my goodness. I did not know that. I was shocked when I heard you say about the 25% of the population. You make up 25% of the world's population, but 60% of the heart disease cases. That's a huge number. Absolutely. And we are dying younger. You see, uh, 25% of our heart attacks are before the age of 40 and 50% of our heart attacks are before the age of 55. So if we know that diet plays a huge role, and you've already said that oil is a huge part of the South Asian uh, culture, if oil plays such a big role, and we know that genes only make up 10 to 12%, why is it at the same time that South Asians are still more vulnerable? Uh, What is it about the makeup of the body that makes them more susceptible to heart disease? We are working on it, Maya. We don't have all the answers. But what we have found is there are certain things which are there, inherent with us. For example, if you look at a South Asian, if you go to India, if you go to Pakistan, you look at the South Asians, they don't appear obese, but they carry fat. Where do they carry the fat? In their abdomen. So the visceral obesity, So this obesity, this fat is around their hearts, in the liver, in the muscles. This is a bad obesity. This is directly related to the heart. But if you see somebody who is overall uh, obese in the sense, subcutaneous fat is healthy fat under the skin. But this fat is bad. That is why you cannot take a South Asian and apply the body mask index of the Western world on him. Because if you apply body mask index, it's 25, 18.5 to 25 is normal. 25 to 30 is overweight. Over 30 is obesity. But if you apply that too, because when I had my heart disease, what was my BMI? 23. So I would have fallen through the tracks anyway. anyway. That makes sense. That is visceral obesity. Then we have got smaller coronaries. They found out we got smaller coronaries, larger lesions, and multiple vessel disease. Oh, my goodness. So this is another risk factor for South Asians. And then about this obesity, visceral obesity is the masala study. Mm-hmm. Because they did a study on a 1,000 people or so between the ages of 44 and 84 years. And they found out that, that they were carrying fat in their uh, bellies. So that was a masala study. And therefore, the Sati study that came around, that was a Stanford South Asian Transitional um, Institute study, which said that measure the circumference of your bellies. Mm-hmm. Should not mm-hmm. be more than 35 in, in men and not more than 30. But 
uh, I am telling you, it should be less less than that. Right. So are you saying then that the population, these pockets of communities should consider themselves at risk even more than everyone else and maybe should start working towards prevention at an earlier age? You would be surprised that the American Heart Association has already declared that being of a South Asian descent is a separate risk factor. Oh, my goodness. So that is already there. We are as separate risk factors, apart from other risk factors, like, you know, we have got more metabolic syndrome, more mm-hmm. insulin resistance. Our, our uh, pregnant ladies get more uh, diabetes, uh, blood sugars high, and then they go on to type 2 diabetes later on. Okay. And our diets are terrible. And then our, our diets full of oil mixed with the Western diet now because it's India and Pakistan are getting richer. You see, mm-hmm. it's surprisingly, you know what, Maya? In America, obesity in some ways or diabetes is a poor man's disease because it is easily available McDonald's and Burger King. Mm. Okay. Yes. While in India and Pakistan, it is a rich person's disease. If you go to the villages in Pakistan and India, they are eating grains, beans, lentils, fruits. <laughs> not, I mean, they may not afford fruits, but vegetables or whatever the little bit they can afford. They don't have heart disease. So here's, uh, it goes along with what you just said. That's very interesting. My uh, husband's mother wrote a, a, she published a cookbook with traditional dishes. And uh, when we made our change, we started transitioning some of her recipes and we asked her to come over so that we can get things sort of right, like the palak, like the spinach, getting it just right, but with alternatives. And um, she was very put off and almost offended. And she did make the comment that this is the way poor people eat. And uh, I thought, well, I come from Mexico. Uh, I, I, you know, I guess when you come from humble, humble beginnings, you do eat more of the, uh, the grains and the legumes and even vegetables, depending on what is available. I, I find so I wonder if that's a barrier in some communities is that they associate the cleaner foods with poverty. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is true. Mm-hmm. It is because they can't get it. So they're eating that. They're not realizing that these people are not dying. <laughs> they may they may look uh, like as if they're not fed properly or whatever, but they still don't die. See, mm-hmm. even if you look at see if you are if you're f- deprived of calories, if you're totally deprived of calories, remember, even in the concentration camps during the Second World War, you saw those people totally emaciated. Mm-hmm. They did not have but they did not die suddenly like a heart attack. So Mm -hmm. my point is that is also bad. It was gruesome. But what I'm trying to point out is that even if you do that intermittent fasting or eat less or start eating when the uh, sun goes up and then stop eating after the sun goes down, what do you go to? I go to India to my family. They have the dinner at 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And then they have their breakfast at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. So it is ridiculous. We are, it is man-made. And, and yes, I do believe that there are several things now, like if you go to uh, uh, 
it's a it's a desi d e s i desi uh, uh less fat whole food plant based no oil diet on facebook excellent recipes oh my goodness excellent yes. recipes have you been on that i have no i i have not joined other group are you talking about facebook groups for these recipes yeah, yeah. you do this desi whole food plant based no oil diet Okay, I will join the group. And it is fascinating that the way they uh, give the recipes. Do you know the other day that my wife and I, we heard about uh, uh, chickpea yogurt? Oh, what? (laughs) Amazing, amazing. Right. We tried it out. It was fabulous. So this is a chickpea yogurt so that you can even use it in your uh, curries and all that, you know. Yes, yes. So now coming back to your book, Open Heart, a couple of questions of how you put this together. So you share your story, your health is, you know, health uh, concerns and um, procedures, and you go on to talk about you're becoming very athletic and running marathons, but also you include a lot of nutritional facts, nutritional information to continue to fill the gap for individuals who may not be as informed how long did it take you to put this book together? This is your first book, I guess, based on your story. And what was the experience like putting it together? You know, it was uh, fascinating because the person who benefits from this book most, the people who benefit most is me. Because ever I have to quote my book or talk to you now, it is reinforcing my habits. So I have spent a bomb on this book and it is all for charity. So I'm not interested in the monetizing this, but I am feeling extremely happy that no doctor or physician in the world could have given me the health, what my own writing has given me. So to me, I was not a writer. My brother is a writer. He has got three books published and he's a psychometrist. While I'm a speaker in the family. So the idea is that I had to take his help in certain things, you know, like grammar or punctuations and all that. But I went slow. I went slow. Then I had an editor who did. And I worked on reading all the books written by all the gurus, be it Neil Bernard or anybody. I kept reading, finding out facts. Then I put those facts because my I wear three hats. I wear a hat of a research and physician. That means I'm now deciding to treat the cause of chronic diseases like blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes. And I'm not treating the consequence. If you want to be treated and if people don't want to do this, what what we are talking about, you and I are talking about a vegan diet and all that, then it's okay. You, You will get the disease sooner or later. And then the consequence of the disease, you will either get surgery or procedure or pills. And then you will even live long because modern science has made us live longer. But understand the difference between a health span and a lifespan. It will increase your lifespan, but not your health span. Mm-hmm. The 20 years of your last years, 20, 25 years are we crazy. We all want to live long, but we are afraid of old age. Mm -hmm. Why? 
So the point I'm making is it took me a little while to get all those things. And because I had saved a lot of notes when I was writing, when I went to Mount uh, Kilimanjaro, because I remembered that my trainer had given me a sliver of a wedding dress to put it over there. And at that time, my grandson was born in 2012. I went to Mount uh, Kilimanjaro in 2012. So uh, his mother, my daughter, had given me his... uh, what you call the pacifier mm-hmm. and I carried both but again to be honest with you and I reached the top I was so cold in minus 20 there is only 50 percent of oxygen I'm on mittens and I'm shivering and I'm reaching over there and I'm trying hard to find out where the pacifier and where the sliver of dress is and I could not <laughs> So I came down to base camp at that time and I said, oh, my God, it's good because they don't let you put things over there. Oh, well, that's good to know. They're keeping it sacred and clean, protecting, protecting our resources. The the beautiful part, the reason that people go up there in the first place. (laughs) But but sad to say when I was coming down, I saw the dwindling snow caps. It broke my heart because they show you the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And the caps are all there, and now they're all dwindling. Oh, gosh, this how disappointing. global warming. Yes. How can people find your book? My book can be found, uh, I think I have a link on it, but it is on Amazon. I think I've already given you a link. Yes, we'll add it to the show notes. Uh, yes. So those people should, should buy, and if somebody in their, uh, I don't mind it, if somebody turns around and says, I cannot afford your book, either downloading it or the paperback, I will send him a copy. Wow, that's very generous of you. <laughs> I am just wanting to spread the heart-healthy message. You know, the other day I was kidding with my wife because my wife and I, uh, she's 70, so she's pretty active also. She runs three miles and all that, you know. Wow. But she told me the other day that you are... Like, you know, you are always with this uh, podcasting and this and that. You hardly pay any attention to me. (laughs) I said, uh, you know, honey, the day heart disease becomes number two, I will be all yours. (laughs) (laughs) You're on a mission. You're on a mission to change the world. And I mean, you you started off by saying that, you know, it's the leading cause of death. It's the number one reason most of us will die if we don't do something about it. And all of us will know someone who died of a heart attack or heart disease. Um, so this it's a conversation that we have to have all the time. We can't just have the one month to focus on. It's year round. We're, we're always talking about how we can prevent some of these diseases through lifestyle. And you've said diet, despite all the exercise you've done, diet is still the best way. If you run five kilometers, you will spend at the most 300 to 400 calories. You go mm-hmm. to an Indian or a Pakistani restaurant or go to uh, McDonald's, you will get 600, 700 calories back in. Yes, yes. Dr. Tehar, I want to read um, your philosophy, this that you include in the book, because it's very inspirational. And it's a very different individual who says this compared to the beginning of your journey. You say in your philosophy, have immense faith in yourself and in a higher power, train, persist, and stay dedicated, remind yourself to constantly keep mind over matter, remember that adventure may hurt you, 
but monotony will kill you. And that's how you're living your life now. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when I say that live outside your comfort zone, I mean um, as a metaphor. I'm not saying that you everybody has to climb mountains or run marathons. No, that is not my idea. But do something outside your comfort zone. Say, learn how to play chess or mahjong that my wife plays or something new, gardening that I took up, cooking, even though I'm a bad cook. But I, I try to learn something different than your... So it keeps you alive. I'm damn good in the uh, patient's room. I mean, I can go close eyes and I can talk to my patients. But the idea is try something different and let adversity, because if you have an adversity under normal life, this thing, you will not get your hidden talents come out. Under adversity, your hidden talents will come out. So you went from being very intense and I get it. You started over as an immigrant. You had to start over at a later age. So very driven and type A, like you said, dealing with all sorts of health issues to now finding joy every day in your life. That is so inspirational. And then your patients are open to all of this. It's just a, a, amazing the impact that you've had on people uh, through, unfortunately, the things that you have experienced. Don't forget, my patients are from Alabama. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's they've even more changed. difficult, right? <laughs> they've changed. They've changed. They'll write to me. Yeah. So, you know, it can be done. It can be done with anybody. And see, remember one thing. Age is not a limiting factor in somebody changing the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I did it at 61. Mm. People can do it at any age. Yes. Because we have this concept especially in the South Asian community, that once you reach 60, 65, then you should spend your time uh, away from anything, but just be there and not be seen. Right. I mean, so, but the idea is no. Yes. You should live life to the fullest till the end. Thank you so much for that message. And I, and as we're wrapping up, actually, I was going to ask you, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners or like a website or any any place that people can find you if they want to reach out and ask more questions or learn more about you? They can always go to my website. And there is a, at the end, you can always put on a message. I look it up and then I reply. My email, I've, I've given that. So uh, if okay. it is, they can write to me. They can do, uh, and I may not, if they call me, I may not reply because I don't reply unknown numbers. But if they text me first that I was on Maya's listing, then I will immediately. The point I'm making is that, you know, make it fun. When you change your anything that you change or transform, that should be, it should be fun and you should be happy with it. If you're not, then your stress will kill you. Because remember something, it's an old yep. overdrive of the uh, sympathetic nervous system which is killing us, the chronic stress. Mm -hmm. That is also a big issue. So at the end, I would always like to say this. People who are listening, people who are watching this, remember the lifestyle medicine. Six pillars. What are those six pillars? Number one, is that you eat healthy. 
whole food plant-based if possible. Number two is exercise at least at least five days in a week, moderate severity under stress-free conditions. Number three, sleep seven to eight hours. Number four, social support. You see, people who are older Indians or Pakistanis who are in smaller towns, they don't have a social support. Mm-hmm. In a big town like Tampa or a big town like Atlanta, people have that. Mm-hmm. So that should be also there. And then finally, the stress level. As I said, you can how to handle stress. So take help from meditation, mm-hmm. a religion, a spirituality, whatever helps you. And then finally, do not smoke. And I, I responsibly drink. But also remember that it just came out. It just came out. My son, who is also a physician mm-hmm. in Atlanta, just pointed out that uh, two weeks back it came out that alcohol does no good for the heart. So it it just came out. Now, a lot of uh, podcasters have asked me, do you drink? I said, yes. I don't, I I have my, I've been having a glass of three ounces of wine for the last 20, 30 years. And it, it makes me, it's me time, my time, my music, my things. So even my dog does not like to bother me at that time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but but I, I, I would like to, because I don't want to be a slave to anything. So I would like to. So now I'm doing alternate days. Mm-hmm. And I'll okay. see if I can give up, because it's not helpful. What is the use? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, the problem is we live in a society that, you know, leans more towards overdoing it. So, well, we may say one glass of wine is fine. Most people may have two to three glasses. (laughs) And then there are other things associated with that. Um, Oh, just one last question. Are you also on social media? Yes, I've given you all the links. I am on Facebook. I am on Instagram. I am on YouTube. I am on uh, LinkedIn. And I, I don't know some other things, but yes, I, I will include all those links in the show notes. And please, please, yes, this has been such a pleasure and a delight to chat with you, to read about your story, to hear about it directly from you has been so meaningful to me. And I hope that our listeners really find value in this and share it with everyone that they love, because this message needs to get out that we can prevent heart disease. Remember one thing. It is a good podcaster who can bring the best out of the person she's interviewing or he is interviewing. And you have that talent because you got me to be almost emotional when I <laughs> talked about my my down, down story. Yeah, well, I'm emotional right now because of uh, the inspiration um, that I've gotten from you. And I almost feel embarrassed that I'm not a runner. I'm very outdoorsy. I love being outdoors. I I love to hike. I love to walk. I love to explore. It's just the gym, (laughs) but I can work on that. Uh, Your husband and you are most welcome anytime you come up to Atlanta. Visit. Thank you so much. Oh my God. What a blessing. Thank you as always. And I do this by the way, with everyone because uh, lifestyle medicine has really taught me to honor all the people that are in this world that are giving back, because this is what we do. You, you're giving back. 
Um, this is the best way to help patients. Thank sure. you. So thank you so very much. Appreciate it. Have a rest of the day, you know. Hope thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to spread our message. Thanks for listening.